Please turn your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible, I would encourage you to go over to the resource table so you can pick up one to follow along with us. If you're visiting, we are going through 2 Samuel, so we are at chapter 7 today. Uh, we will be studying, Lord willing, the whole chapter. Um, let's pray and ask for God's blessing. God, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you are a God who reveals, that you have spoken uh, to us. We are not left without a knowledge of you. And we pray, God, that you would help us to see you and know you in this chapter. We pray that we would ultimately see Christ in the midst of all of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so my buddy and I, we are talking this week, and we are kind of dialoguing and thinking through this question. Where would you go in the Old Testament to help a person better understand the New Testament? But then we narrowed down the scope of that question with, if you had 10 chapters in the Old Testament— to use to tell somebody about the New Testament and the overall uh, teaching of the Bible, where would you go? So kind of give you a, a feel, the Old Testament has I think roughly 929 chapters. So we're talking about a, a little bit more than 1% of the Old Testament based on chapters you get to pick from. What chapters in the Old Testament would you use to communicate and to help somebody understand the New Testament. Give me some. And you don't even have to tell me the chapter. You can tell me the subject. Where, where would you want to be in the Old Testament? Genesis 3. Probably important. The fall, kind of a big idea. So Genesis 3. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. So that's kind of a big one. Uh, Genesis 12 is probably pretty important. God's call to Abram. You might go uh, in Genesis 6 through 9, somewhere in there with regards to Noah. You got Exodus, right? Uh, there's several things. Exodus, you could go to the chapter on the Passover, because that seems important. Uh, God giving the law, that's important. God delivering his people out. Maybe there's some Psalms you would want to go through. Maybe Joshua, them entering into the promised land. I mean, there's a lot of chapters to consider, and you only get to use 10. Well, if I had to use 10, today's chapter is in my list every single time. Because whatever chapter you put in, you're going to put in something that is pivotal in understanding the big picture. Pivotal in and looking at the New Testament in the proper lens. In chapter 7 of 2 Samuel is vital in gospel comprehension, in, in kingdom understanding. It's the inauguration of God's covenant with David. It's the line that will ultimately end with Jesus. It's the long winding road to Christ. So uh, not to oversell it, but this is a big chapter in the Bible that we get to unpack today. And I, I think it's going to be a, a really uh, encouraging, uh, exciting a lesson to go through. And it's really simply laid out. We're going to begin by seeing God's promise to David. We're going to see uh, that God has a lot more going on with David than David simply sitting on the throne. 
So we're going to look at God's promise to David. And then secondly, we're going to look at David's prayer to God. His, his response is one of awe and wonder. So let's begin. We're going to pick up at verse 1 of chapter 7 with regards to God's promise to David. Now, if you recall from last week, chapter 6, we saw a very highly exalting view of God. Do you remember? That God is holy God is righteous. God is just. He is not to be one taken lightly. God's people totally disregard God's commands with regards to the ark. He ends up striking a man dead on the spot. But God also is a God of second chances. God is a God who forgives. He is a God who is worthy of praise and adoration. So they end up finally bringing the ark back. But we see in all of that a God who is gracious and compassionate. And that even builds more in today's chapter as we see the steadfast love of God. Well, as we consider God's promise to David, I want us to see the magnitude of his promise. Read verses 1 to 7 with me. It says, now when the king lived in the house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. Let's consider what David can give God. So David starts feeling guilty in the context. He's in this nice, beautiful palace, or in our words, like a mansion. And he's probably, even where he's sitting, maybe on the rooftop or outside, he can look out and see the Ark of the Covenant. He can't physically see it because it's dwelling in a tent. And he sees the difference, the contrast, and he feels guilty about it. And David says it to Nathan. Nathan, first time we see Nathan on the scene, he's going to be a a prophet uh, for God to David in his lifetime. He's going to come one day later with a much more uh, severe message that we'll see. But David immediately says, hey, I think we should, we should get God a house. And Nathan's like, good idea. Follow your heart. Go with it. And you see the, the good intentions there. I remember when we were looking for a house, I had several people, once they found out we were looking, uh, people thought they would help. So they were sending house options. Like, hey, I saw this house. I, I, like Zillow. Like, it, 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 was, it was Zillow. I got people sending me realtors, people sending me financial, like, loan officers. It was like, we're going to come alongside of you, Joe. And, and it was good intentions, and I appreciate it. But that's what we kind of see here. It's as if David thinks that God needs a little help. Like the interest rates are high. There's not much on the market. I'm going to take care of you, God. But God even kind of chuckles at David. Continue on with me in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Do you understand what David, what God is saying to David through Nathan? I don't need a house. Don't, don't get it wrong, David. We need to start understanding this is God 
condescending. This is God accommodating man. Was he ever in even the tent in its entirety? No, it was God manifesting his presence. But God ultimately is the God of heaven and earth. He's everywhere. God is not limited to this little space that David in kind of his narrow mind was thinking that God needed this house. And it's not fair that I've got this really big house and God's got a tent. So I need to get God something at least on par with my house. And God's like, I don't need it. I'm, and, and what we see to it is God, kind of the incarnational principle, that God is content being what? Amongst his people. He was fine being in the tent. He was fine being at the center of God's people as they're wandering. And then a little bit later, Isaiah 66, when we start thinking about God in a house, listen to what he declares. He said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. Do you understand kind of even the ridiculous nature? Now God is going to eventually let David's son build him a house. But even that is going to be used to foreshadow a much bigger idea of a house of God. But do you understand, like, God doesn't need a house. God is accommodating them by even eventually uh, having a house built. But he's content. We also see in the midst of all this imperfection of God's instruments that both David and Nathan are wrong in this situation. And I think we need to be reminded that a good thing is not always God's thing. That something that wasn't bad in its intentions isn't necessarily always what God does. I think sometimes we look at our lives, we look at ministry, and we think because it's good, it's obviously God's. And that's not always the case. God had different plans. Well, do you presume too often with God? Do you sometimes have a heightened view of yourself that he needs you more than he does? Do you jump ahead of God sometimes too quickly? Do you see the accommodating nature of who God is? But we see not only what David can give God, more importantly, what will God give David? Read verse 8 with me. So God goes on. In these magnitude of his promises, he says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. You see what God is is doing with David. He's recapping what has been going on so far. Because I think here's, here's the issue with David right now. I think David feels like he has finally arrived. He's been waiting 10 plus years. He's been on the run. He is finally king. He's finally king. He's got the ark back in the town It says that he had rest from all his surrounding enemies. If you recall, even his most recent defeat of the Philistines, guess what? We don't hear about the Philistines anymore. So he's in a time of peace. He's king. He feels like he's arrived. He feels like, you know what? I have time on my hand. That's part of the reason he wants to build a house for God because what else do I have to do? But what he doesn't realize is that what he's a part of is so much bigger so much more grand than what David is seeing at the surface. 
It's what we call the iceberg principle. If you've ever seen an iceberg, I mean, they can be huge, but did you know 90%? Yeah, that's right. Nine zero out of 100 is beneath the surface. So I had opportunity years back, I went with my father to Alaska, and we got to see some icebergs when we were on a cruise. And like, you see this gigantic, you might see an iceberg the size of that wall, and it looks just so enormous, and that's nothing. If you look beneath the surface, then you see nine of those. And that's what God is saying to David. Let's start looking at the iceberg right now. Let's go beneath the surface. What's he promising David, Okay. He says, I'm going to make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you the rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. God is allowing David a glimpse of what's going on. And like I said, it's so bigger than what David thought. 2 Samuel 23, verse 5. There's no actual language here where it specifically says God is entering into a covenant with David, but he is entering into a covenant with David. David realized that. 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, he looks back and says, For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. And what we see David doing, what God doing as he's communicating to David is he is tying in even previous covenants that God has made and he's building on those covenants. The first covenant we really see highlighted here is Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, remember what God said. So God, uh, all the nations, the previous chapter, chapter 11, Tower of Babel, things are a mess. And then out of this like chaotic world, God picks a person. Not out of any good in him, not for any reason apart from God's steadfast love. He picks this man. His name is Abram. He will eventually become Abraham. And then God makes a covenant with him. And he says this, Genesis 12, 2. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name. What do you think is going to be made? Great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I'm going to curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he goes on and says, And to your offspring, I shall give this land. Do you see the tie into what God just told David? He tells David what? That I'm going to make your name great and I am going to give you a land. I will appoint a place for my people. So, so God is building on Abraham's covenant with David. Like David is going to be the recipient of these promises of this covenant that it's getting more developed. But it's not just Abraham. He's even tying in his covenant with Moses. The idea of peace, of rest, of Israel as son, as we'll see. Exodus 15, 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. You see, David looked at the immediate context. He's king. He's not battling anybody right now. Life is good. He's at peace. I finally arrived and David is being told by God, you've seen nothing yet. 
Like this is nothing compared to what I'm going to do. And he even flips the narrative. David wants to build a house for God. And God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you. Now, is he talking about the same kind of a house? Everybody nod your head. No. David is thinking of a physical building to house the presence of God. God is looking at David and says, I'm going to build a lineage. I'm going to give you a dynasty that is going to go on for eternity, David. Isn't that the iceberg? David just sees the top and he's like, oh, this is awesome. This is great. And God's like, I'm not even close to done. Do you marvel at the magnitude of God's promises? Do you marvel at your participation in God's promises? Because we can argue strongly from the Bible, if you're a follower of Jesus, all this stuff that we're hearing about, we're recipients of it. That we get to experience this as believers in Christ and what future glory we have with Jesus. Do you see the future hope of God's people? Because not only do we see the magnitude of the promises, let's look at the meaning behind the promises. Read verse 13 with me. He says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love, we looked at that before, Hesed, will not depart from him as it took from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all his, this vision Nathan spoke to David. Notice, first of all, the for certain surety of these promises. If, if you notice, if you kind of go through, if you are underlying your Bible, there is a whole lot of I will. Who's the, who's the I? It's Yahweh. David is very passive in all of this. David is not the one doing it. He's not, he's not being rewarded for his work. Sometimes in school, uh, you're not doing well in academics and you need to do extra credit. You got to do that extra work. So you can maybe get a little bit more of a score. So, hey, is there any way I did really bad on that test, teacher? Well, if you do this, this, and this, if you read this book, if you do this report, I'm not going to willing to give you a hundred, but I'll, I'll take that D up to a C so you'll pass. And we kind of embrace this. God is not giving David extra credit. Do you understand? God is not letting David work. Because here would have been the kind of, as you look at ancient Near East, as you think of the time, one of the pagan practices would have been this. You build a temple for the gods. The gods bless your future in response. So you build, you bless. So what does David do? David's not the one building the temple. No, God is the one building. God is the one blessing. And David is just simply the recipient. And I think when we think of this, when we kind of hear this this promises, we need to realize they are grace-based. God's past, present, and future favor is not based on what you have done. And notice all the things that can't stop God's promises in this passage. First of all, death. What does God say to David? Even when you die, when you lay to rest, 
when you do that, guess what? I'm not done. My promises will not be done. When I give you rest from all of your enemies, guess what? Not done. Death isn't going to stop it. Sin can't stop it. Listen to what he talks about with his son. Your son is going to uh, commit iniquity. I'm going to discipline him. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. So death can't stop these promises. Sin can't stop the promises. And if you think of the big picture, he keeps going on with the idea of forever. Time can't stop God's promises. This is Romans 8.38, right? I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that comforting? I mean, we're filled with uncertainty, right, in this world. We look out, the political landscape feels a little uncertain. We live in Ohio, we joke about a lot, but weather feels very uncertain. We had a football game this week. It was in Sandusky, Marblehead area. When I left here, it was snowing and sleeting. And it was windy, it was cold. I looked at the junior high cheerleaders and, and they were like, we're probably not going to come. And you're like, you got to come, you committed to it. Like, it's not going to be that bad. The athletic director looks at them, it'll be worse there than here. Very uncertain. So we go, we, we drive out in faith to Marblehead, and we get there, and in God's providence, calm as can be. It was 10 degrees warmer, weirdest thing ever. Game, like, we didn't even know what side to defend for defense because there was no wind. It didn't matter. There was no sun. It was just, it was perfect. It, like, that's kind of the uncertainty of life. And it would have been possible for us to show up there, and it could have been two inches of snow. And we kind of experience that uncertainty in this world. And yet, isn't it a confidence builder that we have a God whose promises aren't stopped by death? A God whose promises aren't stopped because of time? God whose promises aren't stopped even by our sin? So are you clinging to God's promises today? Do you find the certainty in them? Are you wavering in your trust of them? But not only is it for sure, we need to understand, though, how these promises are ultimately fulfilled. A lot of the promises we hear are, at best case scenario, are only partially fulfilled in the here and now for there. Because So he says, there's, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be a son to me. And David does have a son. What's his name? Solomon. Solomon is, Solomon is wise, because he asked for it. God gives him wisdom. He is rich. I mean, he's got money everywhere. But he is also a mess, right? He's a mess. I mean, it's bad when you start reading about his kind of a biography in the Bible, and it says that he had so many women, they led his heart away from the Lord. So he's the one. But it's, just, it's not just him, though. There are roughly 38 kings Guess how many of them were good kings, did what was right in the eyes of God? How many? Five good kings that have that definition. They did what was right in the eyes of God. You know how many bad ones? 33. So it gets so bad amongst God's people that what happens? God exiles them. 
Syrians first, then Babylonians, right? Get exiled, so they're scattered. Well, eventually they get to come back. They rebuild uh, Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. And what do the people do when that happens? Some of the people who had saw the previous stuff. They wept. Was it tears of joy? No. It was tears of discouragement because this was nowhere near as glorious as it once was. And we start seeing it, even that kind of idea that ultimately what we're talking about in this chapter, these promises are not going to be filled by an earthly king. Not like they were looking for. They needed a Messiah. They needed somebody to come back and truly be king of kings and Lord of lords. And that is ultimately Jesus. So that's what we see in all this. You think the story's over and it's not over. The Marvel movies, they're, they're notorious for that now to where if you see a Marvel movie, you never know when it's over because they'll do credits and then there's another scene and then most of the people will get up and some people will stay and then there's another scene. You just don't know, like, is there going to be a, even after the last scene, you're like looking at the movie person who comes in to sweep the room and they're like, are you sure? There's, there's nothing left. There's, and kind of like as we read the Bible though, there's constantly like, where's the other scene? Is the next scene coming? Because this is about who? This is about Jesus. Think of it. Matthew 3.17, he says, This is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Isaiah 53 that was quoted earlier. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon his him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, some translations say, guess what? Stripes. We are healed. Even right here, it talks about how with the stripes of the sons of men, he's going to be disciplined. Now, God was not the one that sinned, but God took on the sin of the world and experienced our punishment as a result. That's why 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God, find your yes in him. You see, the ultimate fulfillment of this chapter is still futuristic in the sense of one day. Jesus is coming to return and to rule and reign for all eternity. Well, do you long for the return of Jesus? You remember when we looked at Revelation? That was what is one of the biggest images that we kept seeing time and again in the book of Revelation. King Jesus. King Jesus. God's promise to David in here was always pointing towards somebody who was going to be far greater than David's biological son. There was going to be a king that truly ruled and reigned. So that's God's promise. We see the magnitude. We see the meaning behind the promise. Well, let's look at David's prayer to God, his appropriate response to the Lord. Let's go to verse 18. 18 to 20. And notice that David has a humble view of self. A humble view of self. Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also to your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Notice, first of all, his unworthiness. He says, who am I, O Lord? 
I think we, we, we know people, and maybe some people here are those people, but a person who feels like they are God's gift to creation, that individual who has such a heightened view of self that they kind of look in a crowd and say, man, people are lucky I'm here. It might be in a classroom setting. It might be in a sports team where you're, you're lucky that you get to ride alongside of me. Maybe it's in a relationship. I joke with my wife often. She hit like the husband lottery. I'm joking when I say that. I think I hit the lottery. It's an inverted lottery because, yeah, I, she puts up with me. So, yeah, she doesn't even appreciate the joke most of the time. She's nodding her head now like, yeah. And she's like, can I play again? Can I play the lottery again? Well, David gets it. Do you understand that? We see a theme throughout First and Second Samuel. God opposes the proud but gives what? He gives grace to the humble. What was David's nemesis? It was Saul. And what was Saul's probably biggest issue? Pride. He was an arrogant man who clinged to power. He didn't view himself as God's instrument. He, he wanted to rule and reign. And right there on the flip side, that's why God said, I'm going to put somebody on the throne who's a man after my own, my own heart. And we see the humility with David here. A little bit later, Psalm 8, 4, David declares this, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, there are some messianic overtones in that psalm right there. Uh, Ultimately, once again, it's about Jesus, his humility. But I I think there's a principle there that David is stressing that God selects the most unlikely candidates. When we read of, of God's call to Israel, it says it was not because they were of more numbers that you chose them, but because you loved them. And David is stressing here that God even knows him. Listen to what it says. He he goes into third person. What more can David say? For you know your servant. You know your servant. And what does that mean from David's point of view? You know my good. You know the bad. You know the ugly. Like you start seeing David just like he's overwhelmed. Psalm 139, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Do you understand that? That God knows you on a level that nobody does. Because how many times have you thought you knew somebody and you really didn't know the person? You thought you knew him and then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. And like God, that can never be said of God with you. I thought I knew Eric. I thought I knew Jeff. I I thought I knew him. And then, man, they do that. No, God knows you. He knows your past. He knows your presence. He knows your future. Well, do you feel worthy of his grace and mercy? But not just the worthiness. Notice how overwhelmed he is. He says, my house, it's a small thing. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this instruction for mankind, oh Lord God, it has the wow factor. They talk about that sometimes with diamond rings. Like if you're going to propose, like you, 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 you want to give the w- ring to the woman where there's a little bit of like, whoa. 
Like, I, I'm assuming it wouldn't be the best feeling if you propose and they say, will you marry me? And they're like, yes. And then you pull the ring out and they're like, what's this? Did you get that out of a Cracker Jack box? Like, is, are you serious? Like, where's this? It's funny, but like, where's, where's the real ring? Like, that's not it with God. Like, he's, it's, it's, wow. Do you see David? David is basically saying, wow. Wow. This is instruction for mankind. It actually, the word used is, it's Torah for mankind, law for mankind. And what David is saying is, you mean to tell me not only are you experienced, extending grace and mercy to me, I am a part of something so big, so grand in scope, that it's going to impact all of mankind. Little old me is going to be what you said in Genesis 12, 3. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Even zoom a little bit back to Genesis three sixteen, where God says, I'm going to put somebody where there's going to be enmity between you and, and the woman. You're going to bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head. That's the gospel, the, the first gospel. It's about Jesus. And David is starting to realize, I am going to be part of that story. And he's in awe. He's amazed that he's going to be used to reach the nations. And I have to ask myself, and I have to ask you, are you amazed anymore by the gospel? Has it lost the wow factor? Because if it's lost it, it's not because the gospel is no longer wow producing. It's a hard issue on our part. We've grown comfortable. We've gotten too used to words like forgiveness and grace and mercy and God's love that we kind of take it for granted. We start going back to that person that feels like, you know, God's kind of lucky that I get to be on his team. I mean, I'm glad I'm not like the tax collector kind of attitude. But if you really start grasping what the Bible teaches about you and all, it should leave us speechless. It should leave us beyond amazed. I mean, that, that was John Newton. He was a slave owner. He can't change his past. And, and when he wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, he just didn't write it because it's going to make a good tune. He wrote it from a heart that realized, oh my goodness, God forgave me? I used human beings as slaves. And the gospel transformed my life. And I'm forgiven of that? And David is like, how can you use me like this? Where's our wall? Where is our awe of what God has done? So he has not only a humble view of self, he has a high view of God. Continue on to verse 21 with me. He says, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, Lord God. There is no one like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for him great and awesome things by driving out before your people you redeemed for yourself from Egypt a nation and its God's and you establish for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O oh Lord, became 
their God. Notice the praise. He is overwhelmed with what God has done. Can you think, I want you to think, in your life, what was maybe one of the nicest thing that anybody has ever done for you? Do you remember your response to them? You remember the feelings. There's, there's a one particular instance where somebody really stepped, stepped in and, and helped my family in a financial situation. And I don't know this person. I've never had an opportunity to meet this person. But when the person, the middle person who communicated to my wife and I what was done, I cried. I was just like, are you serious? Are you for real? Now, like, yeah. It's, it's, your, your, your bill is clear. It's zero dollars. And I just, I, I, like, I remember just driving down the road, tears in my eyes. I, I could not get over what they did. And David is feeling like that. He is overwhelmed with the grace. It's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ. He asked that question, who is like God? What's the answer? No one. Who is like your people? No one. Because we're unique in the world because we have God as our God. Because of who he is and because of him, we're never alone. Psalm 71, 14, I will hope continually, I will praise yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day for their number is past my knowledge. You see, David is giving God credit and he is verbalizing his worship before God. We saw it last week where he physically showed his worship and he was undignified and he was dancing around like a, like a wild man and, and Michael's like, I can't believe you did that. And he's like, I don't care, lady. Because I'm answering before God and I'm doing it for the Lord. And I do have to wonder, even in my own life, where is the wow? Where is the praise? Where is the celebration of what God has done? I'm way too easily mesmerized by athletics. And if my team does well. Luckily, my teams often don't do well, so I don't produce as much joy as I would like. But like it's ridiculous that what a a 19 to 22 year old can do or a grown professional athlete can do can determine how joyful I am on a Sunday when I have a holy and righteous God that has done so much that I should be celebratory Monday through Sunday. Well, do you praise God? Do you give him credit? But not only does he, he, is he filled with praise, he finishes with pleading. Notice what he does. Go to verse 25. It says, and now, Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken and your name will be magnified forever, magnified forever. The Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant, David, will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, Thor, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord our God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Notice this is a prayer of faith. It's 
it, it seems too good to be true from David's point of view. So he's like, I know you promise it, but please do it. And I know you do what you promise, but he's just, it's he's, he's like that second guessing that we see David going on. I think it's, it's, it's kind of like maybe like a runaway bride idea. That I think he's worried that, that God might get to the altar and maybe he's going to run away. Have second thoughts. Am I really going to enter into this kind of a relationship with this guy? But that's not the case. Why? Because it's not resting on God. God doesn't change his mind. This is who he is. This is what he's promised. And when God makes a promise, what does he always do? Keeps it. And he's, he's, he's living in faith on that reality. He's pleading on that. That God would keep on being God. Make this happen. It's what Jesus says in the prayer. Matthew 6, 9, the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Thy will be done. He's just saying, God, you've promised it. Make it come to pass. And I'm resting that you are going to make it come to pass. He has courage to pray that because he has courage in God. Would you pray big and boldly to God? Do you rest in him? I mean, how often are your prayers very meager because you, you don't believe in God, you don't believe he's going to do anything, and you, you question kind of what he can do? I mean, I love hearing the prayers of kids because their prayers are, from our point of view, are ridiculous. I mean, they pray for such big things. They're like, yeah, let, let, God, we, you know, we want this. And boom. We want $10 million. God, we were talking yesterday about going to Hawaii for a year. That's not on my future plans. But one of my kids is like, yeah, we should pray about that. I'm like, it's a good prayer. Good prayer. I'll be, I'll be uh, FaceTiming the sermons on the beach. So Andy can deal with the day-to-day stuff. So congratulations, Andy. Uh. Yeah, God has something much better than Hawaii, for sure, 100%. I love the lyrics. I want to close with the lyrics of this song because um, I think it's really relevant because I think it's the heart behind what David says in our passage today. The lyrics are to a song by Casting Crowns. It's called, Who Am I? And it's really that question like, who are we to be the recipients of God's grace and mercy? And we talk a lot about in our culture fairness. That's not fair. We love saying that as Americans. It's not fair. Friends, the gospel is so not fair. But I just want to listen. I want just to consider these lyrics. He says, Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the brighting morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. Who am I that the eyes that see my sin would look on me with love and watch me rise again? Who am I that the voice that calmed the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me? I'm a flower quickly fading here today and gone tomorrow. I'm a wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. Still you hear me when I'm calling, Lord. You catch me when I'm falling and you told me who I am. 
I am yours. You see, chapter 7 is so vital because it it points to Jesus. It finds its fulfillment in Christ and friends as followers of Jesus. We're recipients of those promises. That we're a part of a kingdom that will last forever. Your last day might be today on this earth, and it might be 40 years from now. Or longer or less, we don't know. God does. But even if that day ends up being your last day, it's not your last day. Because we're a part of a kingdom that's going to last forever and that we're going to have a a place with God that we're going to sit under the rule and reign of Jesus. That we're going to have peace that we've never experienced. We're going to have rest that we've never experienced. And we get this all because of Christ. Because he is the one who rules and reigns. And in the meantime, we get to humbly be his instruments. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ, it compels me. Because I have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that he who lives might not longer live for themselves, but for him who their sake died and was raised. Who are we? We're his. And if we're his, we're to be used by him. We're his hands, his feet, his mouth, until we see King Jesus come. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you, and that doesn't even do justice. We're going to sing a song, and, and that's ultimately not going to do justice. And we live uh, our lives, and we try to honor you, and guess what? Once again, doesn't do full justice. But we thank you, God, that it's not about what we do. It's, it's not about paying you back. It's all about Jesus. It's all about your grace. It's all about your mercy, your hesed love for us. So, God, we just say thank you. We're in all of you, and we just want to honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond.